Hopefully you're sitting by a friend or a loved one. And if you are, why don't you reach over and grab him by the hand and let's pray together that God would just continue his work in our hearts. That we would be open to everything that he'd want to do, everything that he'd want to say. Would you pray that right now in Jesus' name? Would you pray for each other? Would you pray for each other in Jesus' name? have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 20. And uh, we'll read a little scripture there. And then uh, we're also going to read from Exodus. And uh, we'll read up front and then we'll go for it. John chapter 20, verse 30. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In chapter 21, he says, if we tried to write everything that Jesus had said and everything that he he had done, that the books of the world could not contain it. But he goes on to say in verse 31, but these are written. And he's speaking of the seven signs that are recorded in the Gospel of John. And if you ever want a good study, study the seven signs of John. But he says, these are written, or I chose these, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you might have life through his name. And real quick, just Exodus, you know what, why don't you just grab it, Exodus 25, and then just put your bookmark in it or whatever, and we'll come back to it. How about that? Uh, We'll read verse 21 and 22. I heard a... I heard a saying that if you ever see a, a turtle on a fence post, you can assume that that turtle didn't get there by itself. And if you ever see someone saved, sanctified, part of the kingdom of God, doing anything in the kingdom, on the platform, in the pew, in the community. If you see anyone doing anything for God, you got to know they didn't get there by themselves. The only way any of us have access to the kingdom of heaven is through the grace and mercy and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You look at the greatest among you, and I will tell you, their life will be marked by mercy and grace continued mercy and grace. John Wesley, uh, one of the greatest revivalists of all time, uh, 130,000 personal converts. Can you imagine? 
Can you imagine one of us having 130,000 personal converts? But if you read the story of John Wesley, you'll find that uh, he got into all kinds of trouble. After riding on horseback throughout Europe, winning, winning Europe and turning Europe on fire for God, he comes to America to do the same thing and he falls for a woman, falls in love with her. And he makes advances toward her and she's not interested in him. Turns him down. John Wesley gets offended and refuses to allow her to take communion. Yeah. What a stinker. He comes back to Europe because after the debacle in America, he had to get a new reputation He finds a woman that's willing to marry him. But he was such a horrible husband to her that she left him multiple times. And when asked about his wife, he said, you know, I didn't ask her to leave. I'm not going to ask her to come back. And eventually she left for good, saying that John loves John loves what he's doing more than he'll ever love me or his family. In the midst of the greatest of it. Is tremendous brokenness. Tremendous error. Tremendous weakness. If any one of us makes it. To heaven's pearly gates. And is allowed access. To the presence. Of the lamb. It will be because of the mercy. And grace. Of Jesus Christ. If you believe that. Clap your hands to the Lord. I got the opportunity to go to Ethiopia with someone that, um, and, and in fact, Brother Smith, you were there the night because you were my, you were my amen corner that night as I preached the message about wanting revival. But Billy Cole was there, the Reverend Billy Cole. He's on the platform, and I don't know if you all know who this man was, but he saw more people baptized in the spirit of God than probably any human being ever in the history of the world. He was such an unbelievable man of faith. In the middle of my message, he comes up behind me and he puts his hands on my back and he yells with that bellowing voice. He says, son, you shall have it. And about three or four months later, I was on a plane to Ethiopia to see an incredible outpouring of God's spirit in that country. But on our way, we had a few stops. And in one of those stops, they messed up the tickets a little bit. And I had tried my best wherever Billy was. I wanted to be right next to him. You know, I wanted, you know, if he dropped a hanky, I was going to get it. So I wanted that. I wanted what he had. And I see him. He's up at the ticker, ticket counter and I'm close enough. I'm close enough to hear him. As he is absolutely losing his mind. He is yelling at this little woman who I don't even know she understood his, his English. He is yelling at her and he is frothing at the mouth. I mean, little spittle forming. Billy Cole became the penguin from Batman. And he is raging. And I thought to myself, no, you can't do this. You are my pillar of faith. 
You're who I aspire to be. What are you doing? I was 19 years old and I walked into my father's office after a Sunday, Sunday morning service. And I walked in and I, I look at him and he is sitting at his desk with his head in his hands. And I said, Dad, are you okay? And I'll never forget as long as I live as he rose up from his chair and in this desperate voice said, No, I'm not okay. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And I, I'm looking at the one that had raised me, the one that was so perfect in my eyes. This is my dad. This is my pastor. And he's telling me he's quitting. He's telling me he's done. It was later on that he opened up about his own struggle with depression. And he opened up about depression when you weren't allowed to open up about depression. He opened up about depression when, if you opened up about depression, someone said, well, you got an evil spirit in you. Or you need to pray more. But the thing is, he was a prayer. He was a faster. He'd given his life for ministry. But he still struggled with anxiety and depression. And it was that day that I realized... We are all broken. We all struggle. Whoever you're looking at and saying, I wish someday I could be them. They're struggling too. But we've come as human beings through a process, a continued process of God trying to help us to understand. We are, have a tremendous propensity to struggle with shame. We, we struggle with shame and we always have and we always will. And I believe if God would break anything off this, this hour's church, it would be the shackles of shame. It would be a sense of unworthiness and worthlessness and personal struggle that keeps us always striving to try to earn what God has declared in his word to be free for us. If you believe that, clap your hands to the Lord. John, John the Apostle is 90 plus years old. 90 plus years old. He's an old guy now. John was there the day that Peter was told by Jesus that he was going to have to be crucified. And Peter was annoyed with it. And not understanding what Jesus was talking about. He points at John and he says, well, what about him? As if to say, I've got to go through this. Well, what has he got to go through? And Jesus rebukes him and says, don't you worry about him. I'll take care of him. Just worry about yourself. But we know Peter's struggle. But man, you see Peter, he's on the day of Pentecost. He's preaching He becomes the apostle of the church. The pastor of Jerusalem. The the bishop of bishops. He goes on to a great career writing and ministering. and Very influential and given the keys of the kingdom. 
you got Paul comes on the scene. Paul is a, I mean, he is a dirty, rotten Christian killer. And he becomes the missionary of the world. The New Testament is basically his writings. But where's John? John's gone. The reason John's gone is because he's taking care of his mother. For literally half a century, John disappears from history. While all these other guys are soaring and getting accolades and going places, John is observing. John is taking care of Mary. And so now, he's at the end of life, but he's outlived them all. Peter's gone. Mary's gone. Paul has had his head removed from the rest of his body and is apparently gone. And a whole new generation has come onto the scene. The leaders, the disciples, the ones that knew Jesus are all gone except for John. And John now comes out of retirement and he begins to write. And he writes a book called The Gospel of John. In The Gospel of John, it is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He does not write synoptically a history of Jesus, but rather he picks and chooses stories that spearhead a truth that he believes is the synopsis of everything that Jesus was and would want us to understand. And at the end of the Gospel of John, he writes what that reason was. you got to understand, these are all the young bucks. Has anyone ever seen the transition from elder statesmen to a new generation and the power struggle that happens and the... And the yelling and the frustration and the fear and anxiety about a transition. Anybody ever witnessed that? In business or in church, it doesn't matter. As one generation is passing, they're so afraid that the next generation is going to miss it. And that they're going to lose it. And so they're fighting so hard to try to reestablish what they believe to be important. Well, you've got to understand, this is... This is the scenario. John is it. He's the last disciple they're ever going to hear. And this is the last thing that's ever going to be spoken about the, the life of Jesus and what it meant for us. And in that moment, when he sits down with a pen, he begins to write this story. And he says, the reason why I wrote it this way, the reason why I chose the story of the wine, uh, the, the water being turned into wine, did you know I found something cool? And I don't, I don't know if you find this interesting, but I thought it was. Most theologians don't, they're not really sure whose wedding it was when Jesus showed up and turned the water into wine. But most of them would agree that it's great, highly possible that that wedding was John's. That it was his wedding. That's why Jesus was there. That's why Mary was there. That's why the disciples were there. But if you read the story, he never even says it was his own wedding. It's interesting that he doesn't even call Mary, Mary. He calls Mary the the mother of Jesus. As if to say, there is only one thing I want you to get out of this. 
the fact that it's my wedding has, has, has no bearing on anything. This is what I want you to get. Jesus Christ was the son of God. He was the Messiah. He was the one that we have spent our whole lives waiting for. For our redemption from sin to be set free. He is him. And that by faith. Somebody say faith. By faith in this truth, we can have eternal life freely. Somebody say freely. Somebody say faith. Gives us access to something freely. I came out of the Pentecostal movement. I'm still, I'd still call myself Pentecostal. I, I believe in moves of the Spirit. I, I believe in the gifts of, of the Spirit in operation. I am so thankful. I was able to be baptized in the saving, powerful name of Jesus Christ. I'm so glad I had a, a daddy and a grandpa and a great-grandpa that understood who Jesus was. But from the littlest of ages, I struggled, always trying to figure out how I could be that person that God could love. I remember at the youngest of ages, hearing the gospel preached, and my response to it was how do I get my life right? So I raced to the altar to pay the penance of repentance. And then at a much too young age, I rushed to the water to validate my rightness with God. Not understanding the process. And then I sought tongues as an approval of God's love and His infilling. And then I rushed on to the continued work, the tasks at hand. And if you would ask someone like me, and maybe someone like you, tell me, what must you do to be saved? We would immediately go to Acts 2.38 and recite for you the things you must do. But the problem is, all of us have a propensity to skip the very most important things. Myself included. Before you repent, you must believe. Before you are baptized, you must believe. Before baptism in the Spirit can really do its work and freedom in your life, you must believe. Acts 2.38 is in response to belief. When they heard the teaching, when they heard Peter share the gospel with them, they are pricked in their heart. They are recognizing for the first time that the guy that they crucified on Calvary 
was the Messiah. He was him. And they say to him, what must we do now? What is our response to what? To our faith. We now recognize Jesus was the Messiah. Before you do anything else, you've got to understand this. Your true salvation and freedom in Jesus is an acknowledgement that from here to glory, past, present, future, no one ever gets there without the free offering of salvation by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you believe that, clap your hands to the Lord. every congregation you got you got the altar people you got the ones that are in the front with their hands raised and crying out to God and not to not to say anything mean about the people in the back it's not always true okay so don't get a complex but there is some kind of spiritual process that happens and I I've seen it so many times that there's people that sit on a pew And they are acknowledging that God is great. But they, but they, but they're struggling with their own brokenness and their own worthiness. And so I call it the ones that get it. And like I said, it's not always the ones in the front, the ones in the back, but so many times, why does someone sit in the back? Why, why would someone sneak in and sit on a pew? Because... There's a continued heavy load of shame that I am not worthy. If this God is who he is, then I am not worthy. And I don't think I could ever be like that. I don't think I could ever live up to what is required. But I have come to declare that the moment you can believe... That Jesus Christ was in fact God robed in flesh. And that he, after living a sinless life, died for you. And shed his blood for you. It gives you the right and the access to the very same presence of God. That all the holy people now seem to be celebrating. There is no differential between the ones that are succeeding apparently and the ones that aren't succeeding apparently. God blanket forgives. God blanket freely sets free. What are you saying? I'm saying most of us in this room, most of us, I'm just going to say it. Every single one of us in this room fight the battle with sin every single day of our lives. We face temptation and sometimes we're victorious and sometimes we're not. But the ones that are in the altar with the joy of the Holy Ghost are the ones that recognize even though I fail, even though I struggle, even though I'm not there yet, I am set free. My coming to an altar, my, my doing works of, of, of righteousness, my, my fruit does not qualify my salvation. It is something I strive for. It is something I, I want to be the best I can be. But the best me isn't any more saved than the struggling me.
If you can believe that truth, clap your hands to the Lord. I was in uh, Los Angeles, pastored there with Lee, Lee and I were there and, and uh, we met all kinds of interesting characters and people from every, every walk of life. And the Midwest is, is different, uh, it's more shrouded. You kind of, you live to some extent uh, deceptively, all of us do, because of fear of judgment and and this constant battle with shame. But in L.A., there is no shame in their game. They just, they, they is who they is. And so we had a lady who started coming to church. And she was a prostitute. And there was times I remember going down the street. And I would see her standing on a street corner. And she had two kids that she was raising. And she was trying to provide for those kids and keep them out of the the system that consumed children and I can remember she started coming to church and she got closer and closer and when she heard the gospel she responded and she came to the altar and she was unkempt she she had a rough life but she would raise her hands up to heaven and she'd cry out to God and and I know with all my heart, God was meeting her there. And she got baptized and she was doing her best. And she, she said, I want to have a meeting. I need to talk to you, Pastor. So I said, Leah, you're going to have to set in with me on this one, okay? So just letting you know. And so we had a meeting. We sat down. We sat down with her. And she was one of those people that, um, you know, she... Uh, She didn't have a filter. You know, some people, they cuss, and they say, oh, I'm sorry, Pastor. Didn't mean to do that. She didn't have no alarm going off saying you you shouldn't say it, probably say that. So there was was no confession or (laughs) repentance because she didn't even know it was wrong, you know. She said, I am so thankful for the mercy and the grace of God in my life. She said, I'm doing so good. She said, did you know I'm not walking the streets anymore? I'm just doing phone sex. And Lee and I looked over at her and we said, that is amazing. (laughs) You cannot get any diseases on the telephone. We live behind our shroud, but if we were really honest today, we would never, well, first of all, we probably wouldn't be honest. We would never be transparent like that. But we sat on a pew day after day, Sunday after Sunday. And you say, what inhibits me? What is stopping me? Is it my failures? No. It's your belief in the mercy of God. It's your shame about the things that you wouldn't want anyone to know about. But they're the things that grip your mind and your heart. And it's what the enemy of your soul uses to continually badger you with. So you're fighting the fight. You struggled as a kid. You were different. 
someone introduced you to some pictures and before you knew it, you were exploring. And, and now something's twisted. Something's twisted. And and your affections aren't quite right. And you're not sure how to change it. And there's a real true fear that you'll never change it. But the truth of what I'm sharing with you is that whether that part of you ever changes or not, whether, whether you're able to really get the reins on it, un, or until that happens, I want you to know what God thinks. What God thinks of you is not what you think of you. And what he wants more than anything else is not for you to get right, but to understand what he did for you. And until that happens, he is a stumbling block. Instead of an encouragement to you, Jesus has become the thing that you fall over as you constantly try to live up to a standard to earn righteousness. But in your earning of righteousness, you're just becoming self-righteous. When all along, Jesus is saying, this is the thing. And John's saying, at the end of my life, after seeing Pentecost, after seeing all the things I could talk about right now, let me tell you what I want you to know. Next generation, don't lose this. Jesus was the Messiah. And he died for you. So that you could have life freely. Exodus, turn there if you would. I'm closing. I had a fun time at that camp with you guys, by the way. Come on now. God says, God says, I want to create a place where I'm going to meet you. I'm going to meet you here. This is where this is where we're going to have special times. This is where God and man connects. And it's going to be at a place I'm going to call the mercy seat. And underneath that mercy seat, underneath that mercy seat, there's going to be three things. There's going to be the tables of stone or the law. There's going to be a rod in there. And it's Aaron's rod that budded. And there's going to be a pot of manna. And they're going to be the testimony. But I'm going to meet you at the mercy seat. And I thought about it for quite some time until I felt like God showed me what the, what the testimony was. And we've taught for years. I, I taught it for years that the testimony was uh, the, the law of God. His justice and righteousness, and then his provision, the manna, his provision, miraculous provision, and then his power, the, the rod that budded, the power and the authority. But if you look deeper, that's not the testimony. If you look at each of those things, they are, they are, they are the statues of monumental failures. 
Ten Commandments. Two-part failure. The people who would give themselves over to idol worship, and then Moses, who loses his mind like Billy Cole, and breaks, breaks the tablets of stone. God has to make a new set. The pot of manna. You read that story and tell me what you get out of it. I know what I get out of it. Ungrateful. Unsatisfied. Complainers. Who said, we want meat. We don't want manna. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you so much meat, it's going to come out your nose. He was so angry at them. And then the rod that budded. You know when that happened? The revolt of Korah. A revolt against authority and against God. That's the testimony of the ark. Monumental. Human failure. But God says, put it in the box. But on top of the box, put a seat. And we're going to call it the mercy seat. Because everything's going to be covered. And so on the walls, they beat out precious metal and, and, and layered it over boards and hung them all around the room. So if you can imagine, if you went into the Holy of Holies and you looked, you'd see the mercy seat with the blood that had been applied to the mercy seat. But then if you look in front of it, you would see a mirror and that mirror would be a reflection of the mercy seat. If you look to the sides, it was a reflection of the mercy seat. If you look behind, everywhere you look in the presence of God, you're going to see the mercy seat. Mercy for the things you don't want to talk about anymore. Mercy for the things that you wish you'd have done different. Mercy for the things that were done to you that changed your your way of thinking. Mercy everywhere, everywhere you look in the presence of God, you are going to find mercy. So you need to stop looking at pornography. But in the process, understand that you're not any less saved. You need to get out of the relationship with the person that you know you should not be in a relationship with. But in the process, understand as God does the work in your life, God has covered you with his blood. You've got to understand you may be still struggling with lust or hate or or envy or strife or malice or whatever it is. But in the process, maybe you're not a prayer warrior and you hear them talk about prayer and all it does is make you feel bad about your walk with God. I want you to know that is not God's intention. And I can tell you, God revels in any moment you spend with him. So you forgot to pray for a month. But if you pray today, can I tell you something? God's going to be right there. You struggled all week, but you come into the presence of God. I want you to know what you may see is your failures. But what we see in the presence of God is mercy. 
everywhere. If you believe that, clap your hands to the Lord. Stand with me. Would you just um, bow your heads for a moment? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you. I'm going to pray that God helps you to get it. I I want you to be set free to do what God's called you to do but until you get his grace and mercy you'll never never be able to accomplish it you'll always be chasing your own tail trying to figure out how to be good enough for him how much do I have to pray to be right with him How many days do I have to fast to earn his favor? How long do I have to beat myself up to pay the penance for my my past mistakes? His grace says it ends today. And a new foundation can be established where your life is set free do what God's called you to do. So John, an old man is allowed to see heaven and he sees the throne and he sees the saints that surround the throne and sing give glory and worship to God. In his heart of hearts, there is a longing to be there. And in the last chapter of this wonderful book, in verse 17, he says, and the spirit and the bride say, come. Come. And let him that heareth say, come. Let him that athirst come. And whosoever wills, say whosoever will. Let him take the water of life freely. So I challenge you. I challenge you to make it a personal quest.
to go back to the beginning and say, God, did I take the appropriate steps? Did I rush into what I was supposed to do for you without truly acknowledging and believing what you've done for me? And if I haven't done that, then take me back, God, and let me see who I am in your presence and what you see in me. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Would you let me pray for you now? God. I pray, God, for the light of truth. I pray, God, that it would explode in our hearts and minds. I pray, God, for the shattering of old, of old systems that have, that have kept us captive to an old way of approaching you, God, that that put all the emphasis on what we did for you. I pray, God, that that would be broken away. And I pray, God, the true light of the gospel would shine in our hearts and minds as we recognize that none of us were worthy on our own. But, God, you have justified us. You have justified us. And if you are for us, God, then who can be against us, God. It is you that cleanses. It is you that washes. It is you that saves. It is you. Help us to recognize it, God. In Jesus' name. For the mama that doesn't have time, hardly any time for anything, God, help her to see the glory in the time she does spend with you. For the dad that goes to work and strives and Pay the bills, God. Help them to recognize your glory and your mercy that flows in their life every day. For the young person that's struggling with their identity and struggling in a world that's in chaos right now. Help them to recognize that they can stand on the firm foundation that you have saved them. That you have washed them with your blood. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Set us free to the callings. That you have called us to. In Jesus name. If you receive it. Would you raise your hands up to heaven. Would you lift your voice. Lift your voices to you.